0: Hi and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host Spencer Martin and we will be covering the recent Vuelta a España and the just released 2021 Tour de France route. Uh, Apologies, I've gone so long in between episodes. There was, uh, (laughs) the election was a little crazy and then one of the uh, co-workers in the Beyond the Peloton studio had a big dump of vaccinations early this week and there was much crying. Not great for podcasting. So, but we're back we're over the fever from the vaccinations is broken we're in better spirits there's less crying and we're back uh it, it, the volta is kind of strange because it means the the season is over now uh at the, with the conclusion of the volta so that is it was kind of a lot it was a ridiculous amount of racing rushed in there we had two grand tours overlapping at one point and then now it's just done uh for we don't really know how long i, I assume it should. It was supposed to start up about mid-January with actually some really fun, interesting races in Australia, but those are not happening because it doesn't make any sense. They, how could they fly to Australia, who's not currently letting people, non-citizens into the country? So I would bet we pick things up in February. I think all the overseas races are not going to happen, the Middle East races, the Australia races. Uh, the Amer- uh, races in South America, they they might happen in some form, but not with World Tour riders. And we will pick up with European racing in February down in Spain, uh, which that will be a nice little break. But if you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash uh, And And thank you for everyone who's done that. And then a lot of people have left nice reviews as well, which are great and help people find the podcast. Uh, and I also have a newsletter that has a free weekly edition and then a premium. It's daily during Grand Tours and Classics and and like major one day races, and it it pairs down to about three per week during the off season. But we're gonna dive into some really interesting stuff. Uh, we have a lot of a lot of big riders unsigned currently, like Filippo Gama, Gana, and Dale Gegenhardt. So I will be keeping up with the transfer news, and then once we have the Rosters set for the 2021 season. I'll be ranking those and trying to figure out who is going to do well next season and who will be awful. I can tell you right now, Israel startup nation is going to be terrible. Uh, But you'll have to subscribe to the newsletter to uh, to read why. But um, so let's let's just. It's been a while since the Feltu ended. It feels like it was a lifetime ago. I think it was like four days ago. But let's cover that really quick. It was uh, kind of an interesting. It was a super interesting race because normally they're, uh, these grand, it was a grand tour, Spanish grand tour. They're normally 21 stages. It was pared down to 18 due to COVID complications, uh, not allowing the race to start in the Netherlands as it was planned. And I think this was like an unmitigated success because these foreign starts, they do them for money. They get paid by, uh, just towns in these foreign countries to come and race. Uh, and, and they, The organizers don't, they actually don't like to have the interesting racing occur outside of the host country. So they're just like really throwaway races. It's like maybe a time trial and then some sprint stages and then nothing happens until they fly back to the country where the race is actually occurring. in. so they chopped off, like it was like three or four stages. And then we like jumped into the GC race on the first day, which was amazing, um, it was happening it was kind of like overwhelming it was happening during the Giro the last week of the Giro so uh that stereo Grand Tour schedule was ridiculous and then at one point there was going to be Paris-Roubaix was actually going to be a third race happening at the same time it did not I was actually kind of happy it didn't, uh it was it would have just been too much but if we look back at that first stage uh Primoz Roglic it was an uphill finish Primoz Roglic sprints to the win uh Richard Carapaz the 2nd, Dan Martin is 3rd and then those three riders were 1st, 2nd and 4th in the overall. So it was like really a GC battle from the gun. Which the tour, if you recall back at the Tour de France, there were hard stages at the beginning of this year's tour and they kind of they didn't stink, but it was just there was not a ton of GC action. But so it was interesting to see how I mean they can make the the courses as hard as they want, but the riders have to want to race. Aggressively, the the GC riders, so we saw the volta is just a lot less controlled, so it was like more chaotic, and I think it, you know with the shortened race, it was just like aggressive racing right from the gun. I you rarely see that at a Grand Tour. I don't know if I've ever seen that where the first stage is essentially feels like a third week mountain stage, and then the first, second, and third stages. Primoz Roglic, the eventual winner, goes first place second place second place you and he's racking up significant time bonuses during this time uh which at the time like yeah I mean that's nice what he gets you get a 10 second bonus for winning 6 seconds and 6 seconds for second place 4 seconds for third place you think like oh that's nice but actually ended up deciding the race without these time bonuses he would have lost to Rich Carapaz who was second uh by 24 seconds in in Madrid so if, I mean even if you think about these early time bonuses are, were like a significant—the first three stages, he built up a, signif- a significant percentage of his overall win, which was, is super rare. You never see this. So uh, just if we want to go through—let's just go through these uh, these stages where I think that ultimately decided the overall— So Roglic is coming out. I mean, we all remember the Tour de France. He was winning, (laughs) fell apart spectacular. He didn't fall. He didn't fall apart. We actually went over that in the podcast and newsletter. Um, Tadej Pogacar just pulled out an amazing ride. Primoz Roglic had a pretty good ride. I mean, he was about six watts per kilo for an hour in that final TT, which is really good. Um, But he loses the race on stage 20. Devastating loss. And then I, I think most right. I mean, even if you think Pogachar did Liege's best on Liege or World Championships Liège, and then just went home on vacation or to rest, or I don't, I don't, I don't know what he, I don't want to. I don't know if he's traveling around, but he is somewhere relaxing. But Roglic decides to do the Vuelta, which is pretty impressive. To I mean, to have a crushing defeat like that at the Tour and then just back it up and do another Grand Tour is. That shows a lot about his character, I think I, I was really surprised that he came here, and he won Liege best on Liege, so I guess in theory, I knew he was in shape, but he really came out strong. but I mean, we all know the knock on him is that oh he's he's comes out strong and then he fades in the third week. I think we as we dig we we find out I did dig into like all the time trial performances he's ever done in Grand tours, and he does have a dip, a slight dip in the third week. he's certainly not falling apart. I think that narrative is a little overblown. But it seemed to be tracking the same way at this Vuelta. Because he wins stage one, gets second on stage two. Which kind of interesting looking back on that. So it was another... It was two uphill finishes in a row. Um, No, I'm sorry. Stage three was a downhill finish. Stage, Stage two was a downhill finish. Stage three was an uphill finish. And Dan Martin wins. I actually thought Roglic was... He almost seemed like he wasn't going for the win. He was marking, he was more worried about Carapaz and making sure he didn't get second so he could take that time bonus. That all, I mean, he, it almost came back to bite him where if he just would have won that and then gotten even a bigger time bonus differential, he would have like added significant, added like a significant percentage to his overall win. Uh, and that, and that, that was kind of a theme. Just like remember that it's kind of a theme of this. Velta, and it's kind of the knock on him generally that he is too conservative when he's riding really well, where he, he was destroying people from stages one through three, and it kind of seemed like he was holding back, which, looking how small that final margin was, maybe he just should have pressed it, his advantage while he had it. Uh, stage six was supposed to be a big mountain stage, in the Pyrenees, I believe, finishing up at the summit of the Tourmalet, uh, which... They didn't do for COVID reasons. They couldn't cross over into France. But I think they kind of lucked out because they finished on Formigal, which is a tough climb, but it's not nearly as hard as a Tourmalet. But it's much lower, and the weather was terrible. Like, it looked miserable. And if they were on the Tourmalet, I mean, that would have been brutal. I don't know if they could have done it. So I think they really lucked out with that COVID uh, rerouting, And this was like, Roglic loses 43 seconds to Carapaz. I think 50, 50, seconds to Hugh Carthy, who I did not consider Hugh Carthy a legitimate contender at this point. And, but if we look back, I mean, he got a significant chunk of time there. I mean, he was, there, there was a breakaway up the road where, uh, you y- on Yon Izaguirre won who's Basque and, uh, just loves that weather. So not, not a surprise that he wins close to his home region in terrible rainy weather because it's always raining in the Basque country. Uh, but yeah, Carthy was like, Carthy almost catches the breakaway. He only finishes 48 seconds behind Isagire, who wins. Uh, and he actually finished seven seconds in front of Carapaz. So, I mean, really, really impressive performance there. Uh, I, it, there I, I don't think there's any footage of it, but I... So everyone finishes and they're bundled up because it's super cold. Roglic is just wearing like a jersey. And I think we found out later that he was like, he couldn't get his jacket on. And there was speculation if he lost time because he was just cold or if he was fading. And if you remember, I mean, he was flying back in August and everyone was or even in July. And everyone was saying, oh, he's peaking way too soon for the Tour de France. He can't hold this up. So, I mean, to think at this point, it's we're knocking on the door of November in this first week of the Vuelta and then Roglic is still flying. I, I did kind of wonder like, Oh, maybe he's just, he's just fallen off the cliff. Like, like how, you can't really carry form for that long. I mean, it seems impossible, but, uh, he was doing it. And I thought that time loss was possibly him falling apart, but the cold weather made it really difficult. It made it difficult to get any clear picture out of that stage. Uh, uh, <laughs> And if we remember, there was also a jacket. I think these jacket problems are happening. There was on stage. I think that was 18 at the Vaglio d'Italia over the Stelvio. The two somewhat Sunweb riders Woko Kelderman and Jai Hindley couldn't get their jackets on. It was like a total disaster, and they had to descend with their jackets open. It was which was a slowing them down and b freezing them. Uh, and I think that kind that probably contributed to their kind of. Poor-ish performances after that. Stages after that, and then the two Ineos riders, Rowan Dennis and Teo Gegenhardt, had no problems getting their jackets on. And I, I mean, I'm sure they stayed significantly warmer because of that. But yeah, so stage eight, just two stages later, is a summit finish, and Roglic just destroys everybody. He, uh, he doesn't even. It look, it's kind of a funny stage to go back and watch because he doesn't attack. He's following everyone. Karapaz attacks a few times, they get inside the final kilometer, Karapaz attacks, and then Roglic counterattacks him almost just to, like, shut him up. Just like, dude, if you're going to keep doing this, like, all right, I'll drop you, but I don't want to do this, but I'll drop you. And he puts 13 seconds into him, wins the stage, so his time, his time bonus differential is four seconds, so that's a 17-second gain. And I, I mean, that's, that was the significant portion of his overall victory that's almost the winning margin right there on stage eight and i don't think he would have attacked if if carapaz wouldn't have kept attacking him and this is kind of where i i think a lot of the criticism of ruglach is just it's just not true it's it's like people kind of it's like pseudo not pseudo science but it's like pseudo pseudo strategy where it's like he needs to be more aggressive and press advantage when he has it it's like well guys it's more complicated than that but this stage it almost is, to me, gives a little bit of credence to that theory. where It's like, hey, if you're that strong, maybe attack 2K out, 3K out, and put like a minute into Carapaz. Carapaz was dying when he came over the line. He was really falling apart. He probably lost most of that time in the last 150 meters, So, which tells me if Roglic would have t- attacked him earlier, he could have put maybe a minute into him in that final kilometer. Uh, so it's a little to me that's it's like kind of like Cadell evans where it's like he never attacks it's crazy he's just always following wheels and with evans i mean evans everyone hated him because of this he was like everyone's least favorite rider because he was just like a leech and he would never he would maybe squeak out he would like squeak out edges when you know when people were really weak and he could and uh yeah he just and Roglic was reminding me of, of that style uh, during this. But the thing about Evans having time, ta- since he's retired, y- you'd wonder, it's like, well, he was probably just on the limit all the time. So like he's not throwing down attacks because he's just going to drop himself. Like the Nairo move is to attack when you're on the limit and then get dropped. So, yeah, it's a little hard to, to criticize unless we know exactly what's going on there. I mean, maybe Roglic was on the limit. And he just knew that he could go anaerobic better than Carapaz and he could sprint for basically the last two minutes of the race faster than Carapaz. But I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not Primoz Roglic. I'm not his coach, Uh, but he seems to have a very high functional threshold power, especially higher than Carapaz. So he may think that he can't drop him, but I would bet that he could, especially if Carapaz is slightly off his game as he appeared on stage eight. And uh, and then we go to stage ten. It's it's funny to look back. These were like these were the big stages. We didn't think it at the time, but stage ten is a sprint stage. Finishes with a slight uphill, and Rucklich wins the stage sprinting, which was pretty impressive, super impressive. It's like a he was like a mini Peter Sagan out there, and so he gets a 10 second time bonus because Carapaz finishes further back, like sixth or seventh, and there's actually a split. So it's a three-second, there was a big controversy about this. We won't go into it. It was incredibly stupid, but there was a, a split in the group. So Carapaz loses three seconds of real time, which is not even real time, but don't get me started, and 10-second time bonus. So that's a 13-second. So if we look at those two stages, that's 17 plus 13 seconds, that's 30 seconds in two stages, two, like two stages in the, at the tail end of the first week and beginning of the second week. And I, you're not the time. It's just like, well, I mean, that's, it's going to be minutes, minutes in the, th- that's what everyone always says. Minute, those are going to take out minutes in the third week. But those 30 seconds, I mean, that's bigger than the margin he ended up winning by. So really interesting to go back and look at that. The stage eight and stage 10 is essentially where Roglic wins the, wins the Vuelta. We didn't know it at the time though. Uh, and then stage 11 is, it's a tough day, uphill summit finish, but it's, it's before the Angurlu stage, which is, probably the hardest climb in pro cycling. So everyone's really conservative. Uh, Hugh, they, everyone, all our, all our boys finished together. Roglic, Dan Martin, Carapaz. Uh, But Carthy gets dropped, which I, I feel like this kind of slipped, slipped between the cracks. He loses seven seconds in like, like 20 meters. So, and Carthy also got dropped in the stage 10 finish, and he finished 10 seconds behind Roglic on stage 10, and then the 10-second 10 10 time bonus. So that's 20 seconds on stage 10 plus 7 on stage 11. So he loses 27 seconds in the course of two days, which weren't really supposed to be critical. Those were just supposed to be pushes, like just get to the steep climb that suits you. And he, I, to me, I mean, we'll get into this later, but Hugh Carthy and Dan Martin, just in my opinion, were really helped by this short, blunted Grand Tour where they normally struggle in the first week because as you're seeing on these these more technical but not as like difficult stages, they'll, they'll lose time. There's a lot of these in the, the Tour de France and the Giro have a lot of these stages, just like medium-hard sprint-type stages in the first 15 days that you, you can lose a Grand Tour right there. As we saw with Carthy, he loses almost 30 seconds in two stages where he needs to just be breaking even, you can't be shipping 30 seconds because you're positioned poorly. So Carthy, I think, had like an, an artificially inflated overall result because he missed that. There was no first week of of jockeying for position on the flats. He just got to go right into the mountains, which is where he's good. Where he's bad is is correctly positioning and sprints and on flat stages. And that's partly his team. I'm not quite sure. Steam is very weak. Uh, EF was. They had him and Mike Woods at this race, and that was kind of it. They didn't have a they didn't have a lot of support, and just they were clearly going for as many stage wins as they could get with Woods. Uh and uh Magnus Nielsen, Magnus Court Nielsen, perhaps. He's listed with three names, but he seems to go by two. Uh both Woods and Nielsen and Hugh Carthy got stage wins. But critically, when they were getting those stage wins. They were just leaving Carthy by himself. So he has like no one to like pull him around and position him the way Primus Ruggles just basically just has like, he's just in the back of a limo back in the Peloton, just getting taken wherever he wants to go. So th- th- to me, that's like, that's the big flaw of Carthy and that team. It's hard, And it's hard to discern of like how much is not fixable. It's like, is that Carthy or is that the team? I mean, Ryder has all had this, the same thing. He would be poorly positioned all the time. Incidentally, he was also on that team, so I can't quite get a read for if Carthy went to another team. Perhaps Movistar that would actually be a great fit for him because Carthy uh, has lived for a long time in Spain and is fluent in Spanish. I, I Movistar needs a leader. I mean, to me, that would be a perfect fit, and they're a strong team. I mean, they have no they have no Grade A leader. Moss is pretty good, but he doesn't seem to have that that extra bit. I think if Carthy was getting pulled around the peloton by Movistar, I mean he he would have been I mean possibly winning this race because the only time he loses the only places he loses time are positioning for these these final kicks. So we get to stage twelve, the Anguilu finishing atop Le Anguilu, which is it's ridiculously hard. It is I mean it's, it's so the stats sheet I has has it at like 13k at 10% average but that's even with some some milder grades in the first few kilometers. I mean, the last half must average like 14% with pitches up to 30%, which if you don't know, that means nothing to you. Just know that's steep. Like, like the steepest street you've ever been on is probably not 30%. So it's it was ridiculously steep. So they get to the stage... Uh, and I, what's interesting, we'll get into this later with the Tour de France route. Uh, what we're finding is these like big set piece stages are actually have less of an impact than like the Formagal stage on stage six. And Formigal's a hard climb. If we all did it, we'd be like, wow, that's a tough day. I'm ready for a beer and a soup at this refugio. But it's not for, for world-class cyclists. I mean, they should be flying up that thing. But we're finding these quote-unquote easier climbs are having a bigger time difference are pushing out bigger time differences than these big, tough climbs. I'm not sure why, I guess everyone, if you watch that, that stage, everyone stays pretty tight. I mean, no one wants to waste any energy because they know this climb is so hard. And they just, I guess they kind of ride at like terminal velocity once they hit it. So there's less room to attack. I mean, if you want to attack, you, if it's super slow, you can't attack. If it's really hard, you can't attack because you, how, how you can't ride faster than the group is riding. A good place to attack is when it's it's like hard, hard, easy, hard, easy, hard, easy. It's like an inconsistent pace. Uh, the course is a little, you know, it's like an uneven climb. Like those are great places to attack. So perhaps it's just maybe the terminal velocity is so high and then differences can only get made in the last two kilometers. Uh, and that's exactly what happened here. Everyone rides up. Carapaz was was riding like last wheel i thought for sure that he was going to get dropped enric moss attacks from the back which it's i i don't know if i really liked that move i mean that's just kind of a climb where if you if you are stronger than everyone else just ride away from him you don't have to throw down a massive attack till you you attack to get distance to then like take away the drafting advantage but when the climb is that steep you can just increase the pace and probably no one can go with you uh, but the big beneficiary of all this was Hugh Carthy. I mean, he was on an amazing day. Um, and he's from a part of England that has, like, incredibly steep climbs. Like, as steep as this. Not not as long as this, but they have, like, so, I think some of the steepest climbs in the world up there in the north of England by the Lake District. Um, I'd assume because they, they don't get a lot of snow, so perhaps the ice is never an issue. I don't know. If you live in the north of England, let me know. But... Uh, Carthy wins the stage I mean he looked like he was gonna get dropped and he just rode away from everyone but what was key here is Roglic was at one point weaving across the road my wife had to point me point this out to me but he was like straight up weaving back and forth like a paper boy to like throwing papers on either side it looked grim I thought for sure the race was over for him there uh but critically Sepp Kuz, his teammate who I think could have won the stage he looked incredible paced them. And there's been a lot of, I've heard a lot of people say, like, criticize this, like, just let sup go and win the stage. Like, there's no drafting advantage on climbs like this. I've actually seen studies where just because there's no slipstream, it's a negligible slipstream advantage because you're all going so slow, that being paced on a climb like that does help. And and high-level runners will know this. We're going to have a super high-level runner on in a few weeks. I'm going to ask him about this. But because in running. I mean, the drafting effect is also much less because you're not you're not going fast enough, but just the 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 act of being paced by someone can really, especially if you're in a tough spot, can really help. And I think that's the only thing. I think that this is where Roglič won the race by only losing he lost 26 seconds to Carthy at the top and somehow limited his loss to 10 seconds to Carapaz. And it's actually reminded me of the 2003 tour um, in like the second week Armstrong cracked early, early on a climb. And Ulrich was just working so hard to put time into him. And then by the finish, I think he had like an eight second gap on Armstrong because he recovered in the last kilometer. And that's what happened here. I mean, I thought for sure that Roglic was going to lose like a minute, but it was, I mean, to me to lose 10 seconds to Carapaz there, that he he won the race right there on that climb. And it can be a little deceiving as a viewer because you leave stage 12 and you're like, wow, Carthy is ascendant. I mean, he looked incredible. Carapaz dropped Ruglich. Like, this race is his. And Carapaz was in the leader's jersey. So it can appear as though oh, they've got it won, right? They have the advantage. But I saw right there, I was like, well, they didn't get enough time on him. I mean, that's the hardest climb they have. If they can't put more time than 26 seconds into him with a time trial coming up on stage 13 and only one mountain stage after this they can't win there's no way and that ended up being right if this just wasn't enough they they cracked I thought I mean it looked like he was cracked but I mean it's a big credit to him uh to be able to keep pacing like that I think maybe if we go back and we watch the stage 20 uh time trial to tour de France he I think everyone focuses on the the loss but it was kind of similar where he wasn't on it. you could see he was not on a good day. He was on probably an abjectly bad day, but he does pace that last climb pretty well for someone that's in trouble, that's in physical trouble. And uh, that's what he did here. I mean, he, he's very good at that. He's, he's one of the best I've ever seen. He can just kind of pop into this tiny, tiny gear and just spin. like I don't know how he spins that high, but he can just spin, spin, spin and really limit his losses that way. So it's, that's, that was a, a big pivotal stage for him. And then the time trial, I went back and scraped two years worth of, uh, time trial data for all these writers versus Roglic and estimated that he was going to beat them all by like a minute and a half to two minutes. I was wrong. He beat them by less than a minute. I mean, and Carthy even tracked him. Like I think Carthy was only a second behind with like, it was a thirty. Three, I believe a 33K time trial. I think Carthy was even on time with him with like 29K to go and then loses 24 seconds in like the last two kilometers. So A, a that's a great time trial from Hugh Carthy. The best I've ever seen. I didn't know he had that in him. Uh, but it, that was a, it was a masterclass from, Car- from Roglic. I saw a lot of criticism like, oh, he should have put more time into him. But you could tell from just looking at the time splits on that, that he was just pacing it perfectly he knew exactly what he was doing where he took it a little bit easier it was a uh, like 31k of flat of pretty much just flat and then a 2k the steep one of the steepest climbs of, i've ever seen in bike racing like it was like sustained 30% for the whole time and he just crushed that last bit i mean the closest person to him was will barda oh no sorry so dan martin got uh got beat pretty bad, but he actually had a pretty good... He had a good, he had the second-best final climb, and he was 17 seconds back. Will Barta got second on the stage. He was 18 seconds back. So he just cru- he absolutely crushed these guys in the last 2K of that TT. To me, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was negative splitting the time trial, grabbing just as much time as he needed. He didn't have to crush that flat part. Why risk it? Why go so deep in the flats when he could blow up on this climb? Uh, I just thought that was missed by everyone. Everyone was like, oh, and he he won the stage. I mean, he won it by a second, but it's tough. I mean, you know, Grand Tour winners don't win many third week. I guess technically not a third week, but they don't win many time trials late in a Grand Tour because they're tired from riding hard every day. And then the people targeting these time trials are not riding hard, and they're just saving it for these time trials. So the fact that he could win the TT, and I believe just paced it absolutely perfectly, took no more time than he than he needed because he knew there's only one mountain stage left. Uh, it was really impressive. But I mean, credit to Carthy. To to only lose twenty five seconds is super impressive. And then Carapaz is he's a really bad time trialist. I feel like he gets away with people don't really talk about that. But he's he's very bad. Probably one of the worst time trialists as far as GC Grand Tour winners go in the modern era. He was 49 seconds back. So great, great ride by him. But you see right there, I mean, those were two incredible rides from Carthy and Carapaz, and they're losing at least half a minute. So it, it shows you why someone like Roglic is so hard to beat. If he can just at least match you in the climbs and then pull out time in the time trials, w- yeah, it's not totally clear w- where do you get that time to beat him. Uh, stage 16, so the final week was kind of odd. It, it ended up working, I thought, because just the, the race was so late in the year because of the reschedule that they... It's a little late to be going up into the mountains. It was just kind of like medium mountain, medium hard days that were like sprints, some like heart sprints, some some breakaway days. Uh, they were all hard, so they were like taking their toll, but kind of an odd way to finish Grand Tour, I thought, because uh, it was pretty much over after the, after the time trial. Roglic is back in the lead. It just wasn't clear that there was enough hard climbs for anyone to put him in the difficulty, and that proved to be true. Uh, stage 16, Roglic almost wins the sprint. He gets second. So he's even pulling out more time on everyone. Uh note about that is Carthy almost got dropped in that sprint. It's kind of odd. Like his teammate won uh, Magnus Court, Magnus Court Nielsen. Let's, let's give him the third name. And he's just back there by himself. He's totally isolated. And this shows you why it's tough to be chasing stage wins and a GC position in the same race. This is like exhibit A of why that's a problem. Because he nearly gets dropped and he would have lost, they count it from the winner to you. So even if you're only a second behind, like 25th place, you could lose 15 seconds because it's been that long since the winners crossed the line. So he's like, he, if you watch that tape, he's like fighting, fighting, fighting to be last wheel in that front group. Uh, just little things like that where make me a little bearish on Carthy's ability to to kind of repeat this Grand Tour success going forward. Uh, stage 17 uh, finished on a final climb carapaz but that was kind of it It was kind of a kind of an odd day too where like a stelvio stage at the giro these it was just climbed so hard the stelvio wasn't even the final climb there was another climb after that so you get these like it was 40 minutes of really just like thrilling racing anything could happen but on stage 17 we all knew that they were just going to hang together until the final climb and then maybe someone would attack with a few kilometers left and that's exactly what happened. Carapaz attacked with it said 2k to go, but the breakaway was a few minutes up the road, so in reality it was probably 2.5k to go because it the uh, k's to go are tracked to the leader, not the peloton. So that got a little confusing. But he pulled out like 27 seconds in the first kilometers of attack, is a kilometer of the attack, which told me right there that he's just riding anaerobic and he's kind of like this. This is why I think he'll have a career trying to win the Vuelta and the Giro and not the tour because the, and the poor TT performances tell me this too. I don't think his threshold is that high, like the power at which he can ride for an hour. Uh, but he just has, he can like, he just has these amazing spurts of speed and then he can recover very well and go again and go again and go again. And that's better for these less controlled races. And I mean, just by how fast he could ride from basically 2k to 1k to go on that climb tells me I mean, he was way above threshold but then Roglic just Roglic really wasn't that worried he's just sitting probably right above his threshold thinking well no like no human can ride that much harder than this unless they're tied at Pokachar, so i'm fine and then he pulls eight seconds back on carapaz in the final kilometer so carapaz started to fade uh, if he want, he was never going to pull out 45 seconds in two kilometers, that would have been ridiculous. I mean, Roglic would have had to absolutely fall apart for that to happen. And so he needed to, A, have his team pull the breakaway back so he could sprint for the win on that climb. In that 10 seconds, maybe allows him to pull out 35 seconds as opposed to 45 Maybe that's the way to do it, but this team was so bad that was never going to happen. Uh he was totally let down by his team here. <laughs> he should have really should have been at the Giro defending his title, but things got messed up with the uh the tour squad way back in August. So he got pulled out of training for the Giro to go to the tour. And uh, Ineos was just so bad here. If he was he left Movistar last year, which actually Movistar was working for Roglic on the final stage to keep Carapaz from winning. Because there's so much bad blood there, but if he would have stayed on Movistar, I think he would have won this. He probably could have won this uh, this vuelta just with that extra bit of teamwork. But yeah, the fact that he didn't attack further down tells me that he probably knows that his threshold power is not high enough to sustain that. And it was just kind of a hail mary. Maybe Roglic falls apart, and I can kind of catch him out because I'm a I'm a really punchy rider uh, who can ride a. the last two K really like kind of intimidatingly fast or start that off intimidatingly fast. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was like, a, it was a close race. It was 24 second gap by the end between Carapaz and Roglic, but it's almost like a false close race where they were never going to Carthy and Carapaz were never going to overtake him in the final week. So after that, after really after stage 12, we knew it was going to happen. And the betting markets reflected that. The, I would have bet on Roglic, but the odds were so expensive that it just didn't seem worth it. Even a sure thing you know, in cycling, anything could happen. He could have crashed. He could have had a flat tire. And stage 18 was just a really boring stage in Madrid. Madrid looked awesome. Uh, can't wait to go. But uh, one note from that is Hugh Carthy actually lost 20. I, I didn't notice this until the day after, but Hugh Carthy lost 28 seconds in the sprint he was actually being piloted by tj Van and who had i'd say the worst uh season of his career he would he raced both the tour and the volta i didn't see him at either one um but just that like for i mean i think that's bigger than the gap between the winner and second place like if he would have been in the lead he would have lost the race on this final sprint stage because of poor positioning And that's just another kind of brick in this case against him where if you know a lot of these grand tours have you know multiple like maybe five or six times as many sprint spades no that wouldn't be right but five or, a lot of these grand tours have five or six more sprint stages than this falta had and if he's losing he's consistently losing time on every one uh to me it's a huge red flag that i think i i, I hate to be negative i mean he's like a super personable guy uh it just seems great as a person but I think this is as good as he got third in this race. I think that's as good as it gets for him. Uh just seeds way too much time on sprint stages. Uh Carapaz, I actually thought he was a one-hit wonder after winning the Giro last year, but uh he was pretty pretty dang good at the Tour for getting pulled out of training and this I thought he was great in this in this velta. This about as good as he could have ridden. Uh without the time bonuses, he wins the race. He just basically lost it on Roglic being able to out sprint him on flatter, easier days. So yeah, uh, I, and as I said before, I don't think he's ever going to win the tour. I just, the type of riding there is so much more time trial oriented. Even if there's not a lot of time trials, the race is normally won by a time trialist because every stage is essentially a time trial. You're just, oh, can you hold threshold for an hour and then maybe sprint a little bit at the end? So I, but I think he's going to always be competing at these shoulder grand tours the Giro and the Vuelta. So, yeah, to me this was and his time trial was was not great, but it was great for him. So, it showed that he does have a future. He'll probably win another grand tour. He's not he's not going to be a rider has it all one-hit wonder type. Uh and so let's uh we'll just do a quick the, so during this Vuelta ASO the, organize, the the organizer of both the Vuelta and the Tour de France releases the 2021 Tour de France route I have no idea why they didn't just wait until this week or next week when we don't have any racing to watch. I have no idea what that was like the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So they dropped this route. I completely miss it because I'm busy uh, watching the Volta and writing the daily newsletter. And I just couldn't really concern myself with a race that it's like a year away. But I've gotten to look a little bit at it. To me, these are always kind. You have to be super careful when you. And then, like Vellanews will have like five stages that are gonna decide the twenty twenty one tour, and it all looks good on paper. Like I'll give them credit. Those I I used to read those pieces and be like, yeah, you know what? They're right because a lot of it does make sense. Like, but you gotta remember, we don't have like the exact like. You can you can have a route. You can have a start town, a finish town, but. I don't know, it's some, like, I need like the full details, like how, how much climbing is on each of these, how many meters of climbing is on each of these stages. And you've really got to think about it. Because th- to me, that's like old style, old school bike thinking, old school cycling thinking, where you're just looking, okay, there's four mountain stages, those are the days. Because as we just talked about, Magal in stage six at the Vuelta was not supposed to be a, device, a decisive day. And it pretty, it almost decided the race. Roglic almost lost it right there stage 10. Roglic got most of his winning margin on a sprint stage. So yeah, you've really got to like, you can't jump to conclusions and you want to give yourself, I think, quite a bit of time, like even months to really look at these things. Because when I'm looking at this route, it is basically, it looks boring. (laughs) Like it looks like an old school Jean-Marie LeBlanc, boring Tour de France. It is a lot of flat stages. I'm counting, just counting them right here, nine sprint stages that's way too many i mean that's like a snooze fest i mean only three summit three summit finishes and and two time trials so it's kind of a on the on paper you're like that's kind of a boring race but if we look a little closer it is it starts in in Brittany, which is cy- big cycling hotbed and a lot of those it's flat region but it it does have kind of an interesting, it's super windy because it's kind of juts out into the Atlantic Ocean, little peninsula, peninsula style. Uh, and it does have, like, the second stage is Mude de Bretagne, which is like a super steep, like, maybe two-kilometer long climb. Uh, it will definitely be won by a GC rider. So, and then you can, like, like Tom Dumoulin, we went there, I think we were there in 2016, 2017. Tom Dumoulin flatted and lost a bunch of time. No, that would have been 20, it would have been Garrett Thomas's tour. So 2018 is when we, when the tour was last there. Uh, So, so yeah, if you have a problem in Brittany, it's just tough to get back on because the racing is hard. It's just like full on uh small roads, a lot of crosswinds. So a lot of these opening flat stages actually could be kind of, could be interesting. And it's, it's death to someone like Hugh Carthy. I mean, a writer like that, he's he's definitely going to get caught up in a crash or a split in the Peloton in one of these opening stages. Uh, we have two kind of long time trials. We have a 20, I mean, at least for, for the modern era, we have a 27K time trial on stage five, uh, 31 on stage 20. So that's a total of 58 uh, kilometers of time trialing, which I'm going to put a newsletter out tomorrow on this for premium s- subscribers. But that's the most since 2016 and then before that 2013 so it's crazy how few kilometers of individual time trialing there's been at the tour de france but if we go back i said this was like a jean-marie leblanc course but i'm looking at like in 2006 there was 116 kilometers of time trial 2007 117 2002 110 so it's it's really it is I'm, i'm exaggerating when i say that uh it's a lot less, but it's almost like there's this, the exchange rate has changed where if they did 117 kilometers of time trial, I mean, no one, I mean, it would just be like a Primos Roglic fest because he could pull out so much time on those time trials that the climbers could never take it back. I mean, I mean, maybe Tade Pog- I mean, Pogachar could, could make that work, but it just, the, the, Gaps on these climbs have gotten so small in modern cycling that they just have to shrink the amount of uh, time trialing, which no, no, no complaints here. I think they're pretty boring, but I, the, the organizers have pushed it in the, in past years, I think in the, in recent years where if there's not enough time trialing, especially if you don't have one before the end, as we saw at the tour this year, everyone always thinks of the strongest riders. So no one attacks because they think well, I'll just win it in the TT. But that's that's actually not how that works. Guys need to be gaining like minutes before the time trial. They want a chance of winning, but they don't do it. So it's good that they have one earlier. I think this is actually a good balance of, of time trials. No complaints No complaints for me on the time trials. One at stage five, one at stage 20, both individual, not team time trials. Uh, I mean, I like that 27K1. That's short. That's it's probably be like a 32 minute effort. That's, that's really good. That'll be a fun little stage on stage five. Uh, but yeah, we're only in the Alps for two days, stage eight, and nine. That's kind of like, it's very strange. Like there's really no famous climbs. It's an odd, it's an odd race. I mean, I guess I'll trust them sometimes when they, when they break it up and get away from these, you can be a bit of a slave to these these big famous climbs, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. But they they climb Mont Ventoux twice in a stage, which I've never seen before. It's a hard climb. It's probably one of the hardest climbs in France. And then I guess there's like construction work at the top. Top at the uh, there's like a like a weather station up there, so they can't finish the stage up there. So then they have to descend and finish the race below. Uh, I know Lance Armstrong like hates these downhill finishes with a passion. But the tour, the technical director had a an interesting point where he said they didn't do they are only doing three summit finishes this year, and they're doing more downhill finishes. I think they're I think they do this so that they can extract a fee from the town because there's no towns at the top of mountains. There's towns in the valley below. I think they descend and finish in town so they can collect a a fee from the town. I I think that's the real reason that they've gone away from summit finishes. But the technical director had a good point where he's saying, uh, the riders just wait until the last 2K to attack, maybe the last K. So you get like five minutes of exciting racing. But if you add a descent, then they attack with, you know, five minutes of climbing left. And then you get a thrilling 25 minutes, 20 minutes, because you get the final bit of attacking on the climb plus the descent. Which, you know, that did happen a few times at the tour this year. So he's not, he's not making that up. It's kind of an interesting thought, actually. And a lot of these descents are, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to look at a, the course last. But there were, I mean, if you remember, Pocachar basically won the tour because he attacked in the Pyrenees. I think that was stage 8 with, yeah, maybe 5, no, maybe 8 minutes remaining on the climb and then just railed the descent into town. And that's, looking back, he gained like 45 seconds that's probably where he won the race so yeah you you can have interesting uh mountain stages that aren't summit finishes but it is a lot of i'm just looking at this there's a lot of just flat rolling stages through france uh it's just not kind of an odd course it's a little it's a little traditional for my taste but an interesting thing, that an interesting byproduct of this. The course may be boring, but this is going to favor someone like Primos Roglic more. I mean, I guess we have to consider Tadej Pogachar time trialist now. Uh, I I don't know how. I don't know why. But he does seem to be one of the best time trialists in the world now. So I guess we got to throw him in that bucket. But this is like for Egan Bernal, who I don't think is... He's got a serious... Uh, it came out that I guess... He has scoliosis, and he has these major, major back problems, which the team must have known about before the tour, so it's unclear to me why they even sent him there in the first place. Uh, it sounds like he's going to be out for a long time, so I don't expect him to play a role at this tour. He wouldn't be able to win it anyway because there's not enough mountain stages and too many time trials. Uh, so that it's like leaves Ineos in a pickle because it is like heavily, heavily slanted towards Ruglish and Pogachar. I actually think. I mean, Filippo uh, Ganna and Teo Kickenhart are both unsigned, which is insane. But if they sign for Enios, they. I mean, Rowan Dennis or Filippo if they lost some weight. They might be able to win this tour. It's crazy. It's it sounds crazy, but su- such an emphasis on and these, these climbs they're doing. A lot of them are. I mean, perhaps they're going away. I mean, a lot of them are. First time climbs, so maybe they're too maybe they're too steep for guys like that, and that's why they're kind of going away from the uh, the bigger name climbs that are a little bit more graded out. I don't know. I've I haven't looked at the course that closely, but I mean French climbs don't tend to be that steep relative to their Italian or Vuelta brethren. So yeah, I don't know. I mean it's an interesting thought experiment if if Rowan Dennis could be a favorite for this Tour de France, and I'm not a Rowan Dennis fan. I'm, I'm so sick of reading the Vela News article of, oh, this is a year where he's going to win Grand Tours. That's been happening for like seven years. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm brainwashed. I don't know. I think he could. <laughs> he was so good in that Giro d'Italia on those mountain stages. He set the record up to Stelvio. So I don't know. I mean, I think he could do it. Uh, but yeah, it's not great for, I mean, if we just look at the, who was good at it. It's terrible for Richard Carapaz. Uh, it's awful for him. You couldn't come up with a worse, a worse course. I'm just looking at the, the tour results from this year. I mean, Richie, Port, apparent, Richie Port's going to, to Ineos. He claims he's not there to be a team leader. I don't know. I mean, they might have to pull him out of uh, team leader re- retirement to raise as <laughs> a team leader at this. This is actually a really good course for him. Uh, Mika Landa, terrible for him. Inrik Maas, terrible. Miguel, 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 Miguel Angel Lopez awful. Tom Dumoulin, uh, I'll be doing a a Tom Dumoulin-specific podcast and a companion newsletter this off-season. There's a big off-season for him. I, a few years ago, ago thought he was like the future of Grand Tour Racing, but he's just really struggled. Um, It's kind of a make-or-break off-season for him. If he could pull things together, this would be like the perfect Tour de France for him. He couldn't make up a better one. Uh, Rigoberto Oran, no way. Adam Yates no way. I mean, yeah, like the, the it gets pretty uh you start whittling down who could possibly win this with this much time trialing and this uh not a mountainous punchy course. Like it, this Tour de France is the antithesis of the Vuelta we we just watched. Just kind of fun. It's like this Vuelta was so exciting and so fun, and it's like, "Oh, if you had to show a newcomer a grand tour, this is the one to do it." And then it's like, whoa. Well, uh, We can't do this all the time. It would be too interesting. People, too many people would be watching bike racing if it was this interesting. So, but the ASO and the tour are—they are stodgy, stodgy, old school bike racing people, and they are probably trying to course correct and get some tradition back into this sport, and that's why they are doing this tour route. But this used to happen with Lance Armstrong and even Chris Froome, where they would switch the course up to. work against the rider who just won it so it almost looks like it's an anti tie pogo course but if you've ever if you know anything about cycling you know that did not work at all and chris froome and lance armstrong just kept winning races so uh the first rule of cycling you should take away from anything in the beyond the peloton universe is the best rider usually wins like if you're good at climbing and time trialing and sprinting you'll probably win so I don't think that, I think Pogacar is actually going to love this course. And then a, a little kind of a wild card is Remco Evenepoel. He's never raced a Grand Tour in his life. Uh, he just broke his femur. So yeah, not, not a great pedigree, but this, if he was healthy, if he is healthy next year, this course is perfect for him. Uh, and actually Joao Almeida, our sweet boy Joao uh, from the Giro this is actually a great, this is a great, great course for him. Uh, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more detailed stuff later we're just kind of doing a quick overview of the tour route but uh yeah have a great week uh, apologies for the long break and i'll be back next week we're going to be breaking down or i'm going to be keeping up with the transfers transfers transfer news as it comes in and i'll be doing some some deeper dives just into like uh Giggenhart versus richard carapaz like who who's inios leader next year and then we'll have uh work to have some interviews and guests on the next few weeks to keep us entertained while there's no racing so have a great weekend and thank you for listening oh and remember to rate and review the podcast it helps other people find it and the newsletter is at beyond the all right thanks bye